Good morning to everyone. Man, brave the weather. I don't know how y'all do it. You have to drive have to drive five miles through the rain, both directions, uphill both ways. It's hard to press that gas pedal. I'm just joking, of course. Um, glad each, each and every one of you are here. And of course, there's probably some on the way um, that uh, will be here shortly. And some that can't be here and some that are probably listening in. Uh, but I'm glad you're here. All right, we're, we're, if you would, turn in your Bible to the book, excuse me, turn in your Bible to the book of Revelation, if you would. We're going to look at chapter number 6, Revelation chapter 6. If you take notes, I hope you're ready to take notes. Got a lot of verses to go through, but we're going to go through them fast. Uh, because uh, sometimes the best way to study the Bible when you're trying to study a subject topically is to kind of run the references and kind of see where they connect rather than doing a kind of a minute study of all the details. But we'll look at, at, at a few things here, but we're going to start in Revelation. I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll begin in Revelation chapter 6. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to study your word together. Thank you for each and every person that's here. Lord, I thank you for them. Thank you for your work in their lives, how that you continue to work in them uh, to bring to pass your will. And uh, Lord, we know that this work is a work of God. And Lord, if you did not, if you were not working in our hearts, each one of us and behind the scenes, this would be a useless and a vain work. And so, Lord, we pray that through this Sunday school, not only our class, but also Miss Judy's class and Miss Pam's class and Brother Mark's class and uh, Miss Beverly's class. And if there's any others, Lord, that you would work through each and every person that's listening to the word today and that you would be glorified. Uh, and Lord, we just entrust it to you. Lord, guide us even as we study now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Revelation chapter 6, I have to make a clarification. I have to make a clarification. Because I want to make sure that I'm clear and, uh, and don't leave any questions unanswered. Again, we're not, we're, we're not finished with our study of the coming of Christ, so there's still a lot of ground to cover. And so as we go, some of, uh, some of these things that we're going to study, will be, I hope and believe, will become more and more clear as we look at the different references and as we learn. But I'm trying to kind of build a foundation and, and basically kind of quickly cover the subject of, uh, of the coming of Christ, especially as it relates to the events that lead up to what is called the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is uh, the, the day of the Lord. There's different words the Bible uses to describe it, but the day in which the Lord returns to earth to establish His kingdom. All right, so that's what, uh, that's what we're studying, but there's a lot of events between, between July 10th 2022, and that day, that must come to pass. God has told us they're going to come to pass. And again, uh, the Bible's not, uh, the Word of God is not given to be a mystery, it's given to be a revelation. So, uh, not that everything in the Bible is perfectly clear. I'm, I'm convinced, I was talking to Pastor Stewart the other day, I'm convinced there are things in the Bible that are written in the Bible right now, in the completed Bible that we hold, that aren't for us. In, it's intended for other people, and we scratch our heads at it. But one day, that 
which has been written for those people will make perfect sense to them, just like in the Old Testament times, things were written not for those people that wrote the Bible at that time, the prophets and such, but for us. And they became clear to us, even though it wasn't clear to them. So I think that's true in the future as well, the principle at least. So let's look at Revelation chapter 6. What I need to clarify is I need to address a... Uh, an argument by, the, by people that is sometimes used by people uh, that do not believe in a, uh, in a rapture of the, uh, of the church. In other words, there, there are people that believe that the rapture either is not going to happen as we believe it happens, or they believe it's going to happen at a different point in history or in the future than we believe it's going to happen and one of those, uh, of course, our church's position and what I personally believe, and, and I believe the, the Scripture spells it out very clearly, and we will, dis- we will study it, is I believe that the Scriptures teach that, that in the pre-tribulation rapture. Okay, so with that, some, sometimes people ask, well, then, if that's the case, and the Christians, the church, is going to be taken out of this world before the tribulation begins then that means there will be no Christians during the tribulation. But last week I said, I said there will be people that believe in Christ during the tribulation. And that's true. So let's look at these verses really quick. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, look at what it says. Now, let me stop here and just make something clear. As we study these, uh, the the idea of, of the coming of Christ and eschatology, the doctrine of future things, there's some assumptions that we make about this. And one of, the, one of the big assumptions, I'm not going into every assumption because some of the assumptions that we make are so obvious that they don't even need to be covered. And all of you are, are, are perfectly aware of them. But one of the assumptions that has to be, <clears throat> excuse me, has to be covered is this. Is the book of Revelation past? or future. Now, if you believe, no one here believes this, I know, but if you believe that the book of Revelation is is past and historical material, that is, all of the things in Revelation essentially are referring to things that have already happened to our time, well, that's going to completely change the way you view what's going to happen in the future. But, of course, the Scriptures do not teach that. Some people believe that because they have a doctrinal, a pet doctrinal persuasion that they desire to defend and to defend that, that is about the future, whether it be amillennialism. Okay, let me pause there. Amillennialism is the idea. Ah, meaning not. Millennial, meaning the millennial reign of Christ, the 1,000-year reign of Christ. Amillennialists believe that there is no actual 1,000-year reign of Christ. To yet to come. That the reign of Christ that is mentioned, the millennium, the thousand years, is all figurative and spiritual. And that we're actually in the millennium, but it's not actually a thousand years. It's kind of representative of a long period of time where Jesus is the king over the kingdom of God and we're in his kingdom. The problem with that is the book of Revelation and all, pretty much all the Old Testament prophecy regarding the kingdom of Christ. That's the problem. And we've already covered a lot of that. 
So, uh, so if you're an amillennialist, you look at the book of Revelation and you can't say it's future, most of it, because that would mess up your doctrine. So you say it's past. Does that make sense? All right. But the assumption we're making, and which is true and biblical, not because we believe it, but because of what the Bible teaches, is that the book of Revelation is almost all future. And I think there's good reason to believe that. And you're going to see it more and more. So upon that assumption, we read chapter 6, verse number 9. Chapter 6, verse 9 tells us about future events, okay? And following the book of Revelation, we're not going to get into all the details, but following the book of Revelation, we can see that in chapter 6, verse 9, this is during the period that is called the tribulation, okay? This is during that period. If you study the book of Revelation, that approximately begins around chapter 4 or 5, and it goes all the way through chapter 19, okay? So this is that period. And the Bible, we won't get to it today, I can already tell, but the Bible clearly defines that period of the tribulation, clearly defines it temporally, that is, as it relates to time. God does define it, all right? So this is not, we're not stabbing in the dark here. We're not guessing on these things. There are some things, and we'll cover one of those things today, that aren't perfectly clear. And good, people that believe basically exactly the same will have disagreements, and that's fine because the Scriptures aren't exactly and perfectly clear and don't exactly state some of these things, but most of it's pretty clear. All right, chapter 6, verse 9 of Revelation. Are there believers in Christ during the tribulation? Verse 9 says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Are these, are these Christians? Are these believers in Christ? Yes. They've been martyred, okay, during the tribulation. And they cry with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest for yet a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So there are people in the tribulation who believe in Christ and give their life for that, for that faith. All right, look at chapter uh, 7, verse 9. One of the most important, and in my opinion, one of the most important things you can latch on to in the book of Revelation are these different groups of people that are pointed out and identified. Because that, that is very important to understand the timing of everything. All right, Look at chapter 7, verse 9. After this, again, we're still in the tribulation. I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Now they give praise to God. Let's skip down. Verse 13. I love this. Look, it doesn't have to be hard. Who are, what is this group? Huh? Say again. These are not the elders. The elders is a different group. Now, Ask yourself, who are these people? This huge multitude of all nations. Here's what it says in verse 13. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto them, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, 
These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Okay, so who are these? Sir? These are people that have come out of great tribulation. And obviously they're in heaven. They have white robes. They're, they're believers, right? Okay, let's keep going. Verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 7. We'll look at this hopefully in just a minute, chapter 13 in more detail. But verse 7, speaking of the Antichrist, the beast, who is described as a beast in chapter 13, verse 7, And it was given unto him, the Antichrist, the beast, to make war with the saints. That means there are saints. So this idea, and for time I'll just, you can look at chapter 15, verse 2, chapter 20, verse 4. All mention believers in Christ that, it, that are alive and then some of them die during the tribulation, okay? So the idea, the argument by those that do not hold a pre-tribulation rapture position that the rat, if that's true, that means all Christians, there's no Christians in the world. And they say, see, but there, there's Christians here. Their assumption is that the Christians we read in, chapter, in uh, Revelation 13, etc., are those of us that are alive now. That's their assumption. Now, that doesn't have to be the case, but the bottom line is that, there, that that argument does not hold to the what the Scripture says. There are Christians in the tribulation, and, um, and there will be. So, to continue with our study, I hope I made that, I hope I made that clear, because these, uh, uh, these things, again, we're laying a foundation so that we can look at other, other matters on the subject of the coming of Christ as it re- directly relates to us. But we need a foundation first, okay? Now, I would like us to look at Matthew chapter 24 again. Matthew 24 and verse 9. So we've studied the beginning of sorrows. That is the general conditions. We, we, I think, probably mostly exhausted that, the general conditions that exist leading up to and will increase leading up to. That's not just in Matthew 24, but in, uh, but in uh, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and other places in the Scripture. And then we go into uh, verse 9. Notice the first word, then shall they deliver you. That's a time word, okay? That's a time word. Probably next week we will get into the time aspect of this. But before we do that, we have to understand something else. So it says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Okay. So as we pivot from the beginning of sorrows the general conditions, and we go into a time where there's more specific and focused events 
what we have here is basically three things. Number one, a great persecution. All right, this is an exceptional persecution. I read the verse last week that says that all they, and uh, was it 1 Timothy, I, th- I believe, or 2 Timothy, I can't remember. I'm terrible with references. But all they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So that's a general statement about Christians of all time. This is a, but this, however, is a, uh, is a specific and exceptional period of persecution. Verse 9. They shall deliver you up to be afflicted. The persecution persists to all nations, and it is and it is a persecution that ends in death. Okay, so this is not just you know like often exists in some Muslim countries where they take away the rights and property of people. No, this this take this is persecution unto death. Okay, number one, this period is characterized by a great persecution. Verse ten. Then shall many be defended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. There is great betrayal, which is also related to the next verse, which, or the verse 12, the love of many shall wax cold. In other words, the natural love and affinity and affection that you would normally have in a relationship degrades and diminishes to the point that people are betraying their friends and family, Luke actually refers to betraying family members. They're actually betraying one another over, and we'll see the reasons for this, this in just a minute. But under intense persecution, if someone came to you, Miss Aguilar, if someone came to you and said, and said um, say you weren't a Christian, and someone came to you, and the, gov- the government, a government agent came to you and said, <clears throat> you either tell us where your sons are because we know they're Christians or we're killing you. Under that kind of pressure, people do things they maybe not wouldn't normally do. And add on top of that, the conditions of this time as described by the Lord where sin abounds. And we're seeing this. We're seeing the dullness of love. We're seeing it slowly kind of build where people's love and affection and a lot of things are numbing people. And I think that's a good description of what we see, like with our own eyes in society. There's this kind of people are numb to their children in the womb. People are numb to, you know, their family members who, you know, disagree with them or they perceive as racist. You know, people are numb to them, right? And uh, this, this betrayal is, this is a period of great betrayal. And then lastly, verse 11, and then in verse 24, it says, and many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. Great deception. All right, so you have great persecution, great betrayal, great deception. Now, if you would, turn to 2 Thessalonians. Now, you remember that those are key features of the period right before the Lord comes as described by the Lord. And these are kind of specific. So, we started with really general that things that build over generations of time, right? Perilous times, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now we're getting into more specific things. That is, now there's policies, specific policies related to persecuting people that believe in Christ. That's what we're reading in Matthew 24. That's the period we're in. Now, we are not in that time now, all right? We are not there. 
there will be a time that that happens, but we're not there, okay? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Let's establish the time of this passage. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that's one, that's one uh, marker. And by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Now the day of Christ, you, we need to dispel one, one common misconception whether you're talking about the day of Christ or the day of the Lord, a day in the Scripture, in a prophetic sense, is not a moment. A day is a span of time. Okay, why do I say that? Well, a day, as we understand it normally, is also a span of time, is it not? It's 24 hours. And many events can happen in a single day. Well, prophetically, the day of the Lord includes many things that that span a period of time that's more than a literal day. And a, a very uh, brief study of prophecy shows that. So the day of Christ is, is not a reference simply to the day that Jesus returns. There's other things. For instance, the judgment of believers is included in the day of Christ. The rewards that are distributed by the Lord to the Christian is in the day of Christ. Now, that, that's not a single moment. However... According to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the rapture is a moment. In a, what does it say? In a moment. In, a, in the twinkling of an eye. So that's a moment. But the day of Christ is not that moment. Okay, so again, we'll, we'll leave that to, to just keep going because I don't want to get too bogged down. Verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, obviously referring to the day in verse 2, the day of Christ, that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. We've already discussed the falling away, the apostasy, people leaving the truth. All right? That's also in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now, later, we're going to come back to this passage and study it with an eye on the time. Okay, because that's an important, this is an important passage when you talk about the rapture. However, what we want to look at right now is this figure. All right? He's called the son of perdition. He's called the man of sin. All right? This is the first time in the New Testament in which this person, this figure, who is yet future, again, verse 1, establishes that this is talking about the coming of the Lord. This is the first time that this figure is mentioned directly in the New Testament. He's mentioned in Daniel, but he's also mentioned for the first time here. And he's all over the book of Revelation. So he's called the man of sin. He's called the son of perdition, which interestingly enough, does anybody, a little bit of trivia, the term son of perdition also refers to one other individual in the Bible. Does anybody want to get? <sighs> know it all. James, tell us what it is. Judas Iscariot, correct. Judas Iscariot, very good. But this, the man of sin, the son of perdition, refers to a specific figure. And we need, we must understand this, this figure. So we're just going to run right through it. We're not going to stop. We're not going uh, to uh, uh, spend a lot of time on it. All right, verse 4, here is this, what this figure does. 
who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. All right? So the, this, this, this figure, the man of sin, son of perdition, he, um, he proclaims himself to be very God, and he receives worship. That's what these verses tell us. He receives worship. Notice where he does this, where this and this matters a lot. Where does he do this thing? Can you hear you? In the temple. Okay? He does this in the temple. He proclaims himself as God, receiving worship as God. Verse 5. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. So this person is now hidden. Okay? There is a force restraining his revelation. Verse uh, 7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. All right? Stop right there. Let, let, let. The word let just simply means to hinder. So if you read verse number 7, you see there is a force hindering the revelation of this figure. So that means you don't know who he is, and I don't know who he is. Now the question naturally comes, what is that force? And the answer is, I don't know. I can't say definitively what it is. I have a few ideas. But here's what, the point I want to make. God right now, at this moment, has not revealed who this person is, and God right now is restraining this person and his spirit from, be, from having its full effect and being revealed openly and working openly. However, verse 7 says, the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Nevertheless, the mystery being a secret, there is some aspect or some spirit of this person that exists that is present and has been present a long time. You go back to second, uh, 1 John tells us about the spirit of the Antichrist. So, so you have uh, this restraining force, and then, of course, in verse 7 at the end, it says that restraining force will be taken out of the way. Verse 8, And then shall that wicked, notice the capital W, it's referring to this figure, be revealed. All right, that's verse 3. It's the same thing. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy the brightness of his coming. So this figure will meet his end at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes in the clouds with great glory. Okay? That's found in Revelation chapter 19. Now look at this. Verse 9. Even him, still talking about the same figure, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Here's another feature. This figure originates with the devil himself. And number two, this figure has power to deceive by means of miraculous signs. What did you say the word means? Hinder. Hinder. Yes. 
miracles, things that cannot be explained by natural means. Okay, we're going to see more of that in just a minute. Now notice, so a lot of people don't know that about Antichrist. There's the, the, the feature of his presence is deception, delusion. But he has power to do that because of miraculous signs that deceive people. Okay? And let's keep reading. Verse number 9, uh, I'm sorry, verse 10. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion, saying, this is a feature of his, of his period, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. All right. Now, if you would, go to Revelation chapter 13. Again, we're making an assumption here that the book of Revelation is future. In Revelation 13 is the description of a figure. Okay, using figurative language, but the figure is real. The person is real. Verse thir uh, chapter 13, verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. That is also, seven heads, ten horns, is also a description of the devil in the book of Revelation. And upon his head, horns were ten, uh, ten crowns, and upon his, head, his heads the name of blasphemy. Now, here's what I want you to, as we read through this, I want you to ask yourself this. What do we read in this chapter that is a clear description of the Antichrist that we also read in 2 Thessalonians? It's important that we connect the two because that helps us understand the time period of 2 Thessalonians, right? Notice what it says. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and his feet were like, whereas the feet of a bear and his mouth is the mouth of a lion, and the dragon, that's the devil, gave him his power. So we did see that in 2 Thessalonians, did we not? His origin was the devil. His power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast. This is talking about all the world, right? Saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a, a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. How long is that? Say again. Three and a half years. Three years is thirty-six months. Add six, you get forty-two. You see, this is why we have to understand this figure so that we can understand the time, right? Now, this figure is speaking against God. The whole world is worshiping Him. Is that not what we read in 2 Thessalonians? Same, the same thing. Now, what we haven't gotten to yet is why this figure is in the temple. The reason the figure is in the temple, we'll get to this next week, is because... He enters into the temple of God in Jerusalem 
Daniel tells us this very plainly. It's in Matthew 24 as well. He enters into the temple and stops the worship of God and the daily sacrifices that are happening there. And then he, from the temple, says and proclaims that he himself is God and he receives worship and all the world worships him. This is the, these are all overlapping uh, descriptions of the same event. Verse 6, And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given uh, unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given, given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So what do we see here? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, same thing. That he is the originator and instigator of a great persecution. It's in Revelation as well. Verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the, in the uh, book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that, kill, that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. And I beheld another beast. This beast is a little less known. Coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. That's the devil. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire to come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. There's your miracle you're asking about. And deceiveth them on, uh, that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which, he, which had the wound by a, a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. There's the persecution. But notice, this false prophet, that's in Matthew 24, false prophets, he does miracles to deceive people into worshiping this figure, the Antichrist. Okay? Who has entered into the temple and is now proclaiming himself to be God and worthy of worship. The reason he does that is a result of these miraculous signs. You know that tells us? Listen, the devil has power to perform signs just like we read in the book of Acts, just like we read in the scripture. We need to be careful. Just because something miraculous happens doesn't mean it's of God. What then is the standard by which we judge if something is right or wrong? Anybody want to take a stab at that? The word of God. The word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 8 tells us that. Verse number 16. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. You don't know this, but that's actually the Bilo bonus card. Just joking. <laughs> Just joking. That's actually the Bilo, Bilo bonus card. Yeah. My wife and I have an inside joke about that. That's a joke. All right, verse 17. 
and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark. Can you understand then why this pressure would be so intense? Unless you align yourself with this figure, the Antichrist, you can't buy or sell. You go hungry. You're poor. You can't buy anything. How is that going to affect the, way, the relationships between family members? Talking about betrayal, Matthew 24. Save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is 603 score and 666. Six, six, six. Now, we're out of time. But again, this figure and his identity and knowing the places in the Scripture that describe him and understanding that in Daniel, Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians, Revelation 13, that we're all taught in all of those passages, this is, remember, progressive revelation. All those passages are talking about a single person. Once we understand that person and what his authority and power and rule looks like, then we can understand the time in which he rules, right? Because remember, what we read in Revelation is the mention, a brief passing mention of 42 months, three and a half years. And that time uh, mention is going to be very important when we start looking at the period of the tribulation. Because what I'm getting to, I'll just let the cat out of the bag. What I'm getting to, I'm going through all this, and some of this you know, no doubt. I'm going through all this so that I can get to the, the, what I really want to get to, which is this. What is your and my hope? As you sit here in 2022, what are you hoping for? What are you expecting? And how should that affect your life? And how should it affect my life. But to answer that, we have to, we have to know some of these other things because it's a, it's a little bit deep. And so we're going to look at that. And if you have any questions or I didn't make anything clear, I'll be happy to discuss it with you. Okay? We'll, we'll stop there for now.